Welcome to episode 83 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we're going to talk a little bit about publishing business relationships. So things Mm -hmm. like the relationship that the author has with the agent or that agents have with editors or that editors have with authors. Um, Just a little bit about those basic relationships and how they function or don't function. (laughs) Yes. And of course, we're going to say this is going to vary pretty much from relationship to relationship person to person, a lot of this business still runs on chemistry in, in many ways. Um, it, but it, 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 I mean, I also think that all business is relationships. It doesn't really matter what industry you're in. You have relationships with clients or your bosses or your coworkers or whatever. So it still exists. But publishing, because it's so tied up with feelings, you know, just feelings in general, like your feelings about your work or your whatever, sometimes it can be a little bit harder to find the line between like professional and personal, I think for Mm -hmm. some people. Um, so let's, let's start with agent author relationships. Um, I guess the first question that people often ask is what do you look for in an agent? And it's honestly, I think hard to say unless you have an agent and of course that's Mm -hmm. like well you don't know if you don't know but like (coughs) I think that what you want in what you think you may want in an agent may not actually be what you want in an agent once you're in a relationship with them but that's not a bad thing that's okay Mm -hmm. people this this happens all the time I think a lot more people look for represent like are on their second or third or fourth, sometimes fifth agent, depending on whatever it is. And there's nothing wrong with that because there are multiple reasons your relationship, your business relationship with your agent may come to an end. It could be as, you know, as simple or as sad as they're just leaving the business. Your agent is no longer agenting and therefore they are no longer representing you. Or... It just may be that they are more aggressive in terms of managing your career than you would like, or on the flip side, not aggressive enough. You really want somebody who has a much more firm and guiding hand over your business decisions, or they are not communicative in in the way that you would like to be. Some agents prefer to just talk to their clients on the phone if they want to give them news, or some people... Uh, just email only. Some people also take maybe a day or two to get back to their clients. Some people are always on top of things. This all depends on the agent and you and what you prefer. And obviously, before you enter into a relationship with an agent, I think it's good to lay all these things out up front. But again, you may never know the things that you did want when you first started may not actually be the things that you really needed. So, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a big one. You know, I think um, 
if you look online, you can see lots and lots of examples of like questions to ask during your agent call and, you know, the kind of things that you should be on the lookout for. And I think that as a baseline, those are usually excellent things to ask. Um, but I think that what JJ said is true. Sometimes you don't know what to ask because you don't know what you want. Is this your, if this is your first time um, having representation, then, you know, all the reading in the world won't necessarily prepare you for what the actual experience is like and your individual experience, you know, the same clients um, or rather different clients who share the same agent can have different working <coughs> relationships with that agent, depending on mm -hmm. a lot of factors. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's difficult to identify the qualities that you're going to need. But I think if you are in you know, if you have representation, if you have an agent and things aren't proceeding the way you want them to and you would like something to change, the first thing you should do is probably just talk to your agent and say, hey, you know, I know that you usually communicate by phone, but I'm much more comfortable with email because I like to have time to think about what I'm going to say and process things or, you know, whatever else. And probably nine times out of 10 agents will be flexible about that. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll say, this is the way that I work and I can't change that. And so, you know, then you can kind of decide whether or not you want to move on. But um, I think author and agent relationships are interesting because um, they're personal in a way because writing is usually personal for a lot of people and you're trusting someone to advocate for you. Um, but... Your your relationship with your agent doesn't have to be a best friendship. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be um, that way. It can be. I mean, if you and your agent become amazing friends, then that's fine. Um, but don't, you know, I feel like sometimes social media gives this, like, twisted view of what relationships look like. Um, and, you know, so I think... If you're focused on, like, I want to be BFFs with my agent, like, that's not a productive way of thinking about that relationship, I don't think. No. I mean, because your agent will have to sometimes make hard calls for you. Calls that... Well, this is the thing. So, what you want out of your career. I think some people want various different things. For example, my relationship with my agent is pretty low-key. Uh... I, she sort of, you know, whatever projects I have in mind, I will float them by her and she'll, you know, give her opinion. I, I think this is viable at this time or this is not, but she won't pressure me or push me or really even put a, any thumb on the scale as to what I should work on. She's just giving me her opinion. And that's fine because for me, I don't need somebody to essentially really guide the next steps of my career. And I know some agents do do that. Some agents who are saying like, look, I appreciate that this is something, these are your ideas or whatever. I think it makes sense for you to do this project next. And a lot of agents are very savvy in that way. And maybe that's what you want. You want somebody who says, okay, this is probably the best thing. I'm a little bit different in that I... I, I know what I want. I, I always know what I want. I never not. I never don't know what I want to work on next. But I do know <laughs> what I want. 
and my agent is and my agent is great and she really does her best to facilitate what I want. Um and she but and so she doesn't push me or pressure me in that sort of a way. Um she also works business hours. I do not contact her outside of business hours. This is not something we established especially up front, but um I know that she doesn't really respond, you know, beyond the hours of nine to five thirty, Monday through Friday. And I respect that. She has her own life and her own time. Like I don't need her to be on hand all the time. I mean, obviously, if there's an emergency, I can contact my agent. It's not a big deal. And, you know, my agent was actually on vacation when she negotiated my last deal. But, you know, she of course she would do that for me. And I knew she was coming. I knew she was going on vacation and all that sort of stuff. And it just happened to be that this was the case. But for the most part, I respect that she has her business hours and she has a life outside of that. And that's fine. I don't need her to be at my beck and call. To be frank, there's not a lot of emergencies in publishing, really. Yeah. You know, one of my old publishers used to say, this is not brain surgery. No one's Mm -hmm. ever died (laughs) because of publishing. I know it might feel like that for some people. (laughs) It does sometimes, but not actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, there are other people who are much more just uh, involved, I guess, in that way, you know, much more active in managing their clients' careers or whatever they work on next. Some people are also, maybe Kelly can speak to this a little bit better, because agents do have differing submission strategies. Mm-hmm. Some are very aggressive. Sometimes we call them sharky, like sharks. And others are a little bit more laid back or passive about it. And depend it it can depend right because sometimes that sort of aggression is really great depending on who they're selling to what kind of publisher they're selling to all sorts of different factors um and so if you really want an aggressive agent that is something to ask for as well my agent kind of lets me lead a lot of the submission process and that of course that we've only been on submission for winter song because my publisher has bought my other projects but um I I liked that my agent wasn't pushy. <laughs> mm. And I don't want to disparage anybody in that way. She what not that she wasn't persistent because she was. We always checked in about once a month and she would give me updates and I know she was always following up on different editors and things like that. But I liked that she wasn't especially pushy. Mm. But that's because I was an editor and I do don't appreciate pushy agents. <laughs> Um, you know, but your mileage may vary on that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, there's lots of different strategies that work for different people. And I think the main thing really is that they have a strategy mm-hmm. <laughs> and that they, that they talk to you about it. You know, you always hear horror stories of authors who are like, did my book actually go on sub or not? Like what is actually happening? Um, you know, so I think there's lots of different styles of submission and they work for different reasons for different people. Um, you know, but having a strategy of some sort is, you know, important. Another thing that I think is really important about the author agent relationship is, um, the author's confidence and ability and trust in the agent that the author feels like they can say no. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times, authors, especially if they're new and it's their first agent, um, they feel like 
they can't say no because this agent is, you know, a powerful person and it took so long to get an agent and they don't want to disappoint anybody or sour that relationship. Um, and you need to be able to say no to your agent. You need to be able to say no to editorial changes that you don't like. You need to be able to say no to an offer that doesn't feel right to you. You need to be able to say no for lots of reasons. And um, that doesn't mean that, you know, that your agent won't try to talk to you about that no and try to say, you know, okay, I hear you, but here's what I'm thinking. And, you know, there'll be some kind of conversations there sometimes, but ultimately an agent works for you and you need to be comfortable and confident enough to say no. And I've stressed that with all my clients. Um, and I've, you know, made it really clear and they have at times, you know, I suggested editorial changes to one of my clients books and she came back and she's like, no, I don't want to do that. Um, and she addressed it, you know, the, the issue in a completely different way that worked better for her and that ultimately I think was better than my suggestion. But if she had been too cowed or too scared or too, you know, whatever to not, not confidently stand in that, um, and express that opinion, then, you know, then all kinds of things can go wrong down the line. So I think, you know, I think that's important that authors feel comfortable enough to be able to say that when they need to. I, yeah, I have turned down initial offers as well. Um, I mean, obviously after discussing it with my agent, because my agent would be like, this is what they came back with. And I would say, "Mm, that's not what I want. So of course, and because she's my agent and obviously my advocate, she would go back and say, look, I brought it to JJ and she said, no, this is our firm line. And, you know, we would discuss what would happen if they didn't meet us where mm-hmm. we wanted them to. And, and that's, you know, that's really important. Like I, you don't have, I, I also think a good agent should be able to also say to you, I think that they be, they would be able, I think that they would budge. Or I think this is the final offer, so we can decide to take it or we can decide to shop your project elsewhere. You know, a good agent will pretty much kind of give you a good feel for that sort of a thing. Um, But let's actually segue into an agent-editor relationship, because that's Mm -hmm. actually a relationship a lot of authors don't know about very very well. Yeah. Um, Because agents and editors do have to cultivate relationships with each other in order to be able to find and acquire projects or sell each other projects. And it's, it's interesting in that it's also a personal relationship as well as a business relationship. You do end up having a lot of go to's as an editor. You, you start to realize that there are agents who have tastes similar to yours. Um, and so you are, so they are often sending you projects that they've acquired because they know what your taste is like. Um, also I think the working relationship between an agent and an editor can be different. Um, as I'd kind of mentioned at the top of the podcast, I was not a fan of pushy, pushy agents. And of (laughs) course, like the definition of pushy can can vary. Um, I know that if I have an issue or if I wanted to bring something up and my agent would always call, you know, she'd kind of send off an email to my editor or publicist or whoever and say, Hey, like, this is something that I would like to discuss on the phone with you. If that's okay. And then they would get on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would, I would remember 
in particular, this is when I was still an assistant and I wasn't acquiring anything yet, but there was one particular agent who was incredibly pushy in a sort of, I guess, kind of like an old school Mad Men-esque kind of a way. Mm-hmm. But this agent would call about every possible issue. Everything. Every possible issue. And I understood that this agent was advocating for their author in the best way possible, or at least in what they perceived was the best way possible. But asking, not, they weren't asking for things. They were demanding that I follow through on things. Not even follow through on things. I never promised these things. I right. even very clearly said to this agent, I can ask, but the final decision on marketing or whatever publicity is not up to me. And it isn't. I mean, I, we can talk about that in a little bit as well. But a lot of those decisions were not up to me. I I was the person who was acquiring a book and who was editing a book and who was championing a book, but I did not have the final say over where money goes. Mm-mm. That is all. That is the case in every publishing house. The editor may have leverage depending on seniority or the or how big the project is perceived as in house. There's a lot of leverage an editor can pull in that way, but they literally don't have the final say when it comes to money. But any perceived slight. And it wasn't the author. The author was a dream to work with. Mm-hmm. The agent, on the other hand, it would get to the point where I would see their name pop up on the screen on my phone, and I just... It, it's that moment of, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. I've worked with those agents, too. When I was a contract manager, I had one agent who used to call to negotiate contracts. And every time I would say... Look, I can discuss it with you on the phone if you want, but I need the paper trail of everything in writing of who asked for what and when and where. So after we get off the phone, you're going to have to email me all of these requests so that I can email you back. Like it's contracts. I'm not going to get hung up over so-and-so said what on the phone. Oh, are you sure? I don't remember saying that. Blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. It's contracts. It has to be in writing. Um, But this agent would call every single time and i was just like this isn't productive <laughs> it's not <laughs> helpful <laughs> yeah so there there's elements of pushiness there are also agents who sort of disappear after a deal is made sometimes mm. and like during the editorial process my agent does not get involved i mean i cc her on all the drafts that i sent of my book but yeah you know be- once the project was acquired, my editor was not involved editorially. It was the relationship was my myself and my editor, so she didn't really step in. Um, and kind of every everything else, my agent is always cc'd on emails. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's more of just a record of this is what's going on. Like, yeah, these are the things that are. You know, my publicist will send me emails. And if I reply or whatever, I'll just CC my agent as a, hey, this is what's going on. And they know that. They don't mind. You know, my agent has never really chimed in to be like, well, you know, sometimes she'll chime in and like, this this all sounds great kind of a thing. But it's not, you know, she's not like demanding things or, you know, she will push back if she wants, if if she thinks that something is bothering me or whatever. But it's pretty, you know, once the agent has has sold your manuscript they will be there like as you know they'll be in your corner but they're not like actively out there being mm-hmm. the middleman all the time but there were i do there were some agents who just would disappear 
And so I would often get requests for payments from the author directly. And I was like, I mean, I'm, you know, and not like most of the time I was pretty much on top of, of payments getting released and things like that. A lot of that gets pretty automated in-house anyway, but sometimes if I was extremely busy and I'd be late, you know, late by a week or two, or if I had sent a request in and they still hadn't gotten paid, um, I could go to, you know, the accounting department or the finance department or the contracts department and be like, hey, did this payment trigger? Um, and I can ask for those sorts of things. Um, but sometimes I had an author who would ask me directly and I never asked her, but I, I was kind of like, why isn't your agent on top of this? You know, so there's there's mm-hmm. kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum too. But in it's particularly in the acquiring stage, the relationship between an agent and an editor is generally friendly and cordial. Mm-hmm. It's a constant process of let's, you know, get to know each other and talk about what we like. Movies, mm-hmm. books, TV shows, to just get a complete picture of what their tastes are. Um and then once once the book is acquired, then the agent-editor relationship is... It still continues beyond your book. That's the thing, right? Because your yeah. editor is still looking to acquire books, as well as your agent is also still looking to sell other projects. So it, mm-hmm. there's still that kind of level of, of fun and of, of kind of getting almost cocktail-ish, like cocktail party-ish, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, it is our relationship. I mean, in the most basic sense of the word that you have to maintain, um, or at least I think you do. I mean, I know there's certainly a school of thought where you just kind of throw things out and see what sticks and don't really put the legwork into getting to know people or introducing yourself. Um, but I believe that submitting projects to people that you think are likely going to enjoy them and therefore acquire them is an ideal way of doing things. Um, and that means establishing relationships with people and talking to them, you know, not only just about work and what they're looking for, what they're not looking for and doing all that research, which is important, but also just getting to know them as people because so much of publishing, um, is about trying to define your tastes in a way that, directs the kind of things that you want to work on toward you. And sometimes we don't even know what it is that we want, or we wouldn't even know it until we saw it. I just read a manuscript that was um, a YA zombie story. And if you had told me two weeks ago that I would fall in love with a YA zombie story, I would have laughed in your face. It seems like something that I never, ever, ever would have enjoyed. Um, and I totally love this manuscript. So you don't always know what it is that you want. And I think that when you establish a wider relationship with someone and get to know them in a more holistic way, um, you can kind of fill in those gaps or sometimes you just get a feeling like, I just feel like this would click with so-and-so, even though it's not on, you know, their one sheet of things they're looking for, I just get this feeling and that's because I know them. And so I'm going to send an email and say, Hey, I have this project. Do you want to take a look? Um, and I think if you don't do the work of putting in those relationships, then you miss all of that. Yeah. It's, it's the tone thing, right? Kind of where even if on the surface, none of it seems to match what they're looking for, but tonally it is in line with a lot of the books that they've liked. Sometimes you can just be like, Hey, 
<clears throat> I know it's not exactly what you're looking for, but I think you might like this based on whatever, even if the mm -hmm. outer trappings of the story are, are not exactly that. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to, to talk about taste and publishing in that way. The, the longer you're in the business and the more agents you know, the better they are at tailoring this to you because they, because you can say, I'm looking for a book. You never use the big tentpole books. You don't use big successful books because people get so many, there's so many people reading them and they're so successful and everybody gets different things out of them. Mm -hmm. So that's why we say don't use comps like Harry Potter or Game of Thrones or Divergent or Red Queen. Don't use them because it's actually meaningless for a lot of us because what I like out of any of those properties may not be what someone else likes out of any of those properties. <clears throat> so we tend to get actually a little bit more specific. For example, if I were to say I'm looking for something in the vein of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. That's, that can mean a couple of different things. It could mean historical fantasy. It could mean like Naomi Novik's dragon books, which are also set in the Napoleonic era, or it could mean a kind of wry, dry way of telling a story. Um, it can mean all sorts of different things. And so the more, you know, someone, the more you kind of get a sense of what, they mean when they say, I'm looking for a book like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So there's that aspect of the, of the agent editor relationship. I mean, it, it, it's, and also I think through an agent and through an editor, rather the agent probably starts to get a good sense of what it's like to work in that house. Mm -hmm. And that's also kind of crucial. The agent will not have direct first-hand experience of how things work in-house or how things mm -hmm. are run in-house. But the more agents, the more editors that they, that they get to know, that they lunch or that they have phone calls with or drinks with or whatever, the more they have a complete picture of the workings of a publishing house. And this can... This can vary for so many different things. You can you start to get a sense of what the hierarchy is. Like, mm -hmm. so-and-so could probably get this project acquired faster than so-and-so, but may not be the right editorial fit. Or, you know, there's kind of... You, they start to make these sort of judgment calls the better they know... A, the better they know the people who work there. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Do you have anything to add about this relationship or... No, I think that's, I think that's pretty it. I think they're pretty crucial. And also like, I think part of the thing with agents and editors too, is just, we all work in this industry and we all like books and, you know, most of us are pretty smart and it's just fun to get to know other people in the industry. You know, like I just genuinely like so many of them and I get off so many editor calls and I'm like, Oh, I want to be your friend because <laughs> you're, you're such a cool person. And, um, you know, obviously you don't get along with everybody and, and you can be, um, have successful business relationships without a personal element to it. But I think, um, so many of us in the industry do have like crossover, like business and personal relationships with the same people. 
Yeah, a lot of people in publishing work, live and work together kind of literally. Like, my mm-hmm. roommates worked in publishing. Yep. <laughs> um, so, and it can be kind of awkward and strange sometimes if, like, you're, like, I was an editor and living with an agent. We kind of had this agreement that, like, we're not going to. We're not going to cross that kind of living boundary. Like, don't, we're not going to try and acquire, I'm not going to try and acquire this project or, you know, whatever. And that was also fine. You know, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Because we have to draw those lines too at some point, but there are a lot of us. There are a lot of us that (laughs) like literally live together because it's, it's, it's still a fairly small industry to be honest. Mm -hmm. So now the relationship between the editor and the rest of publishing Mm-hmm. or the rest of the publishing house. Obviously, this can depend house to house, so everything we are going to say has a has an asterisk yep. next to it with just, it depends. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep, yep. That's always going to be the answer. Um, it depends on a number of different things. Seniority is one, you know, you, you start to mm-hmm. get promoted after you've been there a long time. You start as an editorial assistant, you get promoted to assistant editor, then you get a promoted to associate editor, and then regular editor, and then after that you get senior editor or, you know, executive editor, or there's kind of different levels, and the kind of higher up you go, the more leverage you're able to kind of, not just leverage, I think the more trust your publishers give you. Yes, yes. Um, it's harder to take risks when you're younger. It's easier and harder. You can take risks for less money, Mm-hmm. Um, so you can take risks up to a certain point monetarily, and then you start to have to really fight and justify what you're trying to do. Um, but the more you, more books you have under your belt, the bigger your list is, and the more complete picture of how well those books do for your publishing house, obviously you get promoted, um, but the more trust they're willing to give you, the more that, well, this, this worked out for you in the past. And so, okay, we're willing to trust you that this will work out again for you in the future. Um, so there's good, obviously that's kind of the relationship that a published, that an editor has with the publisher. Like, to be honest, the person that the people that editors are always trying to quote, justify their acquisitions to are, kind of the um, the editorial directors of whatever they're trying to do. So there's usually an editorial director that sort of oversees kind of a general direction mm-hmm. of the type of book that they're trying to acquire. The publisher. Now, publisher is actually a position. Yeah. And they don't... Some of them edit. Some publishers do edit. Um, that they are both editor and publisher, but essentially what a publisher is, is somebody who is able to authorize money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally is kind of what it comes down to. Uh, they are the ones who are signing the checks, <laughs> signing the P&Ls, signing, and they're, they're, they're the ones that are putting their signature on all of the money. So sometime and so different relations are different relationships happen with different things also your editor-in-chief is pretty important to try and get them on board with an acquisition you're trying to make the editor-in-chief is a slightly different position because the editor-in-chief does edit and they are their signature is also required in order to acquire a project although they're not necessarily the ones directly financially responsible an Mm -hmm. editor-in-chief is the one who sort of 
gives a holistic look at the direction an imprint is going. So they're they're kind of responsible for kind of a cohesiveness to mm-hmm. the entire imprint. I always used to say that if I ever stayed in, in publishing, I'd never want to be editor-in-chief. No. My editor-in-chief never had time to edit his own books. I mean, he did. No. He, he well, edited his own books. Thing. but <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, is that the higher up you go, the less actual editing you do, and the more you have other responsibilities. Yeah. I think, and a lot of times you have, say, an executive editor, and at a certain point you get so busy that you have assistants. And your executive, a lot of times, and sometimes this happens a lot in that the more senior editor will acquire a project and give it to a younger editor, usually their assistant, to mm-hmm. edit. Partially, You'll see that in deal announcements even, like acquired, yeah, acquired by, so-and-so by so-and-so yeah. with so-and-so to edit. Yes. Um, and partially that can be for multiple reasons, that they are buying this because they have more power than the younger editor, so they are able to acquire the project for the editor that wanted it. The other is teaching them how to edit. It mm-hmm. is something that has to be learned as well. You don't in necessarily innately know how to edit something. So it's kind of practice in some ways. Like they'll say, okay, I have this project, read it, tell me what you would think, or tell me what you think, or tell me. And you, you do talk to your mentors in that way. You sit there and you sort of go through, okay, I think they should... I think maybe here or here or here could be strengthened. And if they did this, and I think it would probably sell better. Because at this point, obviously you're trying to make the book the best book possible, but your mentor is essentially trying to tell you or teach you how to also edit something to make it saleable, basically. And it kind of So there's that kind of level of mentorship, ideally. Not that this, not that this happens all the time, but ideally that's the kind of mentorship you would have with somebody. Um, and then there are people who are just acquiring editors, but not actually people who are editing, editing. Um, and I think the more experienced agents should also be able to tell you what kind of an editor that this person is. Somebody who is very, very much. Very heavy on line editing, very, very particular about how sentences are structured or whatever, or somebody who is a little bit more laid back in that way and more focused on bigger picture. Others who edit more lightly but are incredible at navigating the sales and marketing side. There are all different kinds of editors, and it's it's not like this one-to-one thing where everybody is like, a, everyone edits the same way. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Um, there are definitely people who, who edit pretty lightly and just are good at getting out the commercial aspects of the book, but care less about prose or care less about certain things, but they are extremely good at shepherding this project through sales and marketing and getting the entire house excited and getting a lot of money behind it. Those are also important things. Um... And as as much as we would like an editor to do do that, as well as be a really, really detail-oriented editor in some cases, that's not always the case because we don't always have time. Mm-hmm. I was trying to explain this to another friend. You know, they'd ask me, what do you guys do all day? 
And I said, everything but read and edit. Uh huh. <laughs> everything else. Everything else. It's generally meetings back. It's almost always meetings. Mm-hmm. There was an acquisitions meeting. There was marketing meetings. There were yep. even smaller editorial Lunch. meetings. Yep. Uh, all the time, but then even when it comes to reading and editing, you aren't, you're not just reading for yourself. You are reading for other people constantly. So in addition to your enormous TBR of manuscripts that have come in, that you try and be as fair as possible, you Mm -hmm. have your own work of projects you have acquired to read and edit. But on top of that, your colleagues are always coming to you and saying, I have this project. I need a second read. I need a second read. I have this project. Can and those are usually time sensitive because mm-hmm. they're trying mm-hmm. to get it to acquisitions board or there's another offer on the table and you're trying to compete with it. So if people are going for second reads, it's usually like, stop what you're doing and read this. I've done that, so that many, many times. Up at Ed board. Yep. <laughs> I've done that many, many times. And I've asked other people to do that. Like it goes mm-hmm. to auction in two days. Please read this now. <laughs> like, <laughs> or, you know, or, and, and I've had, you know, other colleagues come up to me and be like, look, there's a lot of interest in on this. And I think this is going to go really quickly. Can you give me as quick a read as you possibly can? And sometimes you'll do your best to read as much of it as possible, or you just read the first hundred pages or whatever you, but you are reading mm-hmm. to give your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, aside from those rushed things, I think most editors and agents do their reading on their downtime. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They they read on night and on weekends. A few very lucky editors have the glorious reading day where they're allowed to stay home and read all day. But that's not everyone. Um, You get to pull those sorts of things when you're older. And by older, I mean more senior in the the business. Yeah. You know, because age really doesn't matter. But, like, the longer you've been in the business, the more you can be like, I'm swamped with reading and editing. I'm going to take a reading day. Um, Less, you can't really get away with that when you're, you know, younger in the business. But but it's not all that often. When I had stuff to read, I always read it on my commutes. Mm -hmm, Yep. I remember in New York, before I had an e-reader, um, printing out like the manuscript. And I remember one time going down the subway stairs and tripping and the, all the pages of the manuscript, like fluttering oh, through oh. the air. <laughs> it was horrible. Oh no. It's the worst. I mean, I had my routines too. So I worked in the flat iron and I lived in Astoria, which was off the NW train. Um, mm-hmm. well the W went away, but it is now apparently coming back. Um, oh. I know. Anyway, that's, this is like New York City subway stuff. So it's like if you don't live there, then you don't quite understand how this necessarily affected your your lives. But um, so the 23rd Street stop that I always took was the N because that gets off at of 23rd Street. But there are stops at 30, that 28th Street, 34th Street, 42nd Street. Um, so I would actually walk from the Flatiron to 32nd Street. Every Thursday, because I always designated Thursday as the day I was going to read for myself. Every Thursday, because Thirty Fourth Street was where all the Thirty Second Street was where all the Korean restaurants were. Mm-hmm. So I would walk up there, go to the same Korean restaurant, order the exact same food. They always knew me, but I would just sit there for like two hours mm-hmm. and read as I ate. It was kind of the only way I could really because there's so I mean, 
You have to read, obviously, but you also have a life, right? I had to go grocery shopping. I had to run errands. I had to do this. I had to do that. And I couldn't, I would have to carve out time specifically at least once a week for me to do that. I would read on the commutes generally. I couldn't read on the morning commutes because I was always standing and I just yeah really couldn't do that. Um, although I have sometimes when a, when a project was really, really good, uh, if I'd started it the night before, sometimes I'd pull an all-nighter and just read oh, yeah. all night because I couldn't put the book down. I love those types of things. Or, or on a day I am able to get a seat on the subway in the morning, I would open my reader and I've missed stops. I've yep. missed my stop when I'm like, oh, shoot, because I was so... Abs- but those are the best kinds of raids, in my opinion, because you're so absorbed. Yeah. You you kind of forgot about everything else, and those are the ones where you're like, I have to get this for second reads mm-hmm. and get other people interested. So that's kind of behind the scenes a little bit about what an editor's workday is like. Um, I think we had some questions based on the topic that we had asked about so if you want to look at those Kelly sure thing um okay um so one question is from PD Paps and um she asks after agents sell an MS to an editor, how hands-on do they remain during the editor's editing notes, or does the process remain solely between editor and author? JJ talked about this a little bit um, with her agent was kind of hands-off present, but not directly involved in editing. And I think most agents operate that way. They stay um, in the loop, but not necessarily involved. Um, of course, that depends. It varies you know, depending on the agent and the editor and what's going on. But in general, I think the relationship between an author and editor is important and that a lot of times it's best if the agent stays out of that and just lets the editor edit. Um, and then the agent steps in when there's something businessy that needs to or be addressed. If there's, a, if there's a change that the editor wants, um, that the author is not comfortable telling the agent or telling the editor directly. Sometimes the agent would sort of say like, Oh, Hey, you know, I don't know if the, basically that rarely happens. It only ever really seems to happen. I think in the case where the editor is requesting a change that may fundamentally kind of change the direction of the book. And I don't mean plot and I don't mean characterization because there are times when, and this is, I'm not going to name names or anything, but this is anecdotal and stories that I've heard from other people that their editor really pushed hard on making some, like adding a romance or Mm. upping the romance and making a more of a romantic book as opposed to whatever the writer was trying to go for. And obviously this is between the author, like ultimately it's the author's decision. They can agree. But if the, if the, editor and not just the editor if the house is insistent that they want to up the romance because they think it would sell better you can choose to the you can choose to walk away from that deal because they can also choose to not accept the manuscript the mm. you know ex- go back to our contracts episodes what does acceptance mean right they can in fact choose to not accept your manuscript for that reason it was not edited to the way that they would have liked now these are extreme cases 
Um, I've had friends walk away from contracts because what the changes that the editor was asking for were not in line with the vision that they had in the book. And the editor was like, well, unfortunately, this is the only way we're going to accept this manuscript. Then they broke it off. There were other reasons that this particular friend of mine walked away from that deal um, that didn't necessarily have to do editorial direction and off really did have to do with a pretty big mismatch in terms of editorial style and the author themselves. So, and that can happen. The, and that's a valid reason to, to break a contract with someone if you can afford to do so. So, um, and they had the wherewithal to do so. They returned part of the advance and that's generally what will happen if the author is the one to break it. But these are extreme cases that rarely happens. Most of the time, your agent's just kind of there, CC'd on emails, basically. <laughs> All right, so next question. We have another one. This is a two-parter, and it's like perfectly split, one for you, one for me. Awesome. Um, this is from oh, uh, A. Sturtz. Uh, love to hear what could happen if your editor orphans you and the different ways agents choose whether to rep new projects from their current authors. So why don't you talk about being orphaned? Yes, because that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> being orphaned, I, it can feel like the end of the world, but generally being orphaned happens multiple times. Being orphaned generally happens when your editor leaves in the middle of a project. They've gotten another offer from another house. Uh, they can't bring you with them, unfortunately. No, the your con contract is with the publisher. Yep, the contract is with the publisher and not with your editor. Um, so when you are orphaned, you are... It, it can depend on the house. Generally where I worked, uh, the editor-in-chief assigned the, assigned the author to an editor that he felt fit the the author best um but it can like i said it can depend sometimes it goes to an assistant if the person who left was is more senior uh or you can request manuscripts i've done that where someone has left and you know there i knew what what list that they worked on and sometimes i would request an author and i really love their work and i would love the opportunity to work on their projects so that can all depend i was pretty lucky because my edit, my first editor who acquired me, I loved her. Um, and she left editing. She went to being a film scout and she left at a pretty good time for us because she left after the editorial process was done. So all the revision, we had a final manuscript, everything was essentially done. It had been transmitted to production. So, and so the only thing was, I would have, you know, would be would be her championing championing my book to marketing and sales. But I already got to know my marketing and sales department. Plus, my agent was there. They were behind my book pretty big, so I wasn't. It was it was a quote ideal time for this to happen, more or less. Um, and right. My, my and I was actually orphaned twice, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> because my second editor also left uh, for a different position. But I never worked with that editor editorially on any mm. of my work. I never worked on it, um, an actual project with them. So again, that was fine. And my third editor, I really liked out is my friend. <laughs> 
So it's like a full circle kind of comes back. Um, <laughs> and Eileen, please don't leave. I love you. <laughs> but I, I have been orphaned. And I, mine happens to be like kind of the best case scenario. My editors left at points where they were not actually editorially working on my book. And were kind of at that point being the ones shepherding the book through sales and marketing. Um, and I ended up with an editor who actually used to read my stuff before I was published. She was my friend. So that was just like really be, like just worked out really well for me. That doesn't always happen. I have to say, sometimes you get just assigned to somebody else who may or may not understand what you're trying to do. And as unfortunate as that is, there's really nothing you can do about that. You know, I've had some people ask, can an author initiate an editor change? Mm. It has happened, but mm. the people who requested editor changes were like enormous, mega, mega, mega bestsellers. And I mean like mega bestsellers. So it, not that it hasn't happened, but it is incredibly unlikely that you would mm-hmm. be able to get a different editor if you are not getting along with yours. Yeah. And in my time in contracts, even I saw people try to negotiate who was going to edit the project um, in the contract and that's never going to happen. You can't, you know, because again, people leave and, um, things change and it, your contract is ultimately with the publisher, not with an individual editor. And so, um, a really barring extenuating circumstances and a lot of clout. That's just not something that you're going to have control over. Yeah. And I don't know how well authors know editors in house anyway. So, even if like, but you really, there's no real way to request working with a specific editor. Sorry. <laughs> Being a downer once again. Um, it's what we're good at. It's what we're good at. <laughs> but you know, to let you know, I was orphaned twice, but it worked mm-hmm. out really well for me. So it's, this isn't to say that it can't have a happy ending. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a tragedy. Um, you know, it's just, just kind of move through it. Yeah. Um, the second part of the question was, um, how do agents choose whether to rep new projects from their current authors? And this is interesting because I've actually had several ongoing conversations with some of my colleagues about this question. Um, the first thing is to look at your author agent agreement. Some agreements specify that it's for this title only and we'll move forward on a title by title basis. Some um, agency agreements are for, you know, your body of work for the duration of the agreement. So however long you maintain that relationship, the agent will represent most of your work. Um, That said, I have heard a lot of horror stories. There's like these author urban legends, I feel like. (laughs) And um, they have some basis in fact, you know, so they're, I'm not saying that authors are exaggerating or, or anything like that. These do have roots in fact and things that do happen to people. But I think it's become this major concern that an agent is going to love your first book, the book that they, um, offer to represent you for. And then either they sell that or they can't sell that. And so you're either working on your second book or you're just working on something new, um, since the first book didn't sell. 
And they don't fall in love with the second book the same way they fall in love with the first and they dump you or you have to dump them because there's like this massive creative vision. Um, this does happen. Sure. Of course this happens. Um, but I do feel like it's become this, I hear authors talking about this all the time. Like it's a huge fear, uh, that they have. And I think for agents whose agreements say, you know, I want to represent your body of work for the duration of the agreement, um, which is what my agency agreement states and what I hope to do. You know, I want to work with authors for the length of their career. Um, and is there a risk that I might not love their next book? Sure. Um, that could happen. Certainly. I don't anticipate that. It's not something that I'm actively concerned about. Um, I sign the people that I sign for many reasons. And it's because I like a lot more than just their story. I like right. the way they write. I like the way they look at the world. I like the way their minds work and the things that they, you know, it's a lot more than just this story um, that makes me go into thinking I would want to work with this person over multiple projects. So that's kind of the first thing. The second part of this that I want to talk about is... Um, what a friend of mine called the heart baby book, <laughs> which what? is the heart baby book, uh, which is when authors write the book of their heart or their book baby or the project that is like so intensely personal to them that it doesn't allow them to view it objectively. Mm. Um, and, a lot of the times that I've heard of actual experiences where an agent and an author are clashing over a project, um, it's almost always the heart baby book that it happens. And that happens only when, not because when you write the book of your heart, it's bad, but a lot of times um, authors can't separate themselves from that book. And so if an agent is saying, Hey, we need to make these changes or, Hey, I don't think the market's right for this project or any of the reasons that they might have an author only hears you hate the book of my heart and mm -hmm. I hate you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not what's actually happening, but there's like some kind of communication breakdown where it becomes like so intensely personal and an agent's like, no, I want to work with you and I want to work on this, but like X, Y, Z things. And, and authors can't hear that. They're just like, you hate my heart baby book. You hate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I think that I, I don't know. I just want to, I just want to caution people that, um, that your writing is always intensely personal to you, but you're pursuing publication because you want the book published. You want other people to read it. You want it to go out into the world. And when your book goes out in the world, it doesn't just belong to you anymore. It belongs to anyone who reads it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's your agent's job to make that happen and to facilitate that and make sure that other people, um, can access that book. And if you're holding on too tightly to it, then, you know, sometimes there's a, there's a breakdown. And it's funny because I was just having these types of conversations with some colleagues about how do you, how do you navigate that? I think ultimately, um, both parties, author and an ager, agent, want to continue working together. Um, and so it really just becomes about communication more so than the project itself. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you need to be able to hear criticisms of your work. You need to be able to hear um, career guidance about your work. Maybe, you know, maybe it's an amazing project, but you're just not ready to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that happens a lot, which isn't to say that you can't put it on the shelf and come back and write it later. Um, but sometimes a story is just beyond you at the moment. You know, I think every time an author writes a new project, they learn something new and their mm. writing evolves. <laughs> JJ's, JJ's like, stop calling me out right now. <laughs> I feel so attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I think you learn new things and I think you grow and you have strengths and you discover new weaknesses that you then overcome. And like, you know, it's a process. And I think that um, you do not have to... You know, sometimes you have to be ready to write the thing. And then, and that's not to say, um, you know, that, that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think people can do a great job. I think your heart baby projects are amazing. And I think, you know, maybe you are ready to write it and your agent's going to love it and it's going to be wonderful. But, um, that whole thing of like breaking up that fear of like, my agent isn't going to get it. My agent isn't going to love it. Um, it's multi-layered. (laughs) yeah I mean also there are instances I know where people have had a different agent for only one project in that for Mm. example their agent represents adult in YA in middle grade but doesn't represent picture books right they just don't have the picture book contracts and so so sometimes they can either co-agent a project with somebody else in their agency that does rep picture books sometimes that does happen um, if it's a bigger agency, but sometimes, and I, I do know that people have a specific contract, but like project by project, cause it's just like your one picture book idea with a picture book agent. So that can happen too. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, like it, and to be honest, it's very rare. And I, I, I am a little suspect of agents that rep everything. Yeah, because how can you possibly do all that legwork? I'm so overwhelmed, like just trying to do all the networking I do for the few things that I rep. If you repped everything, I can't even imagine. And it, we we all have. I think it's a, it's a little bit of um, like if you spread yourself too thin, I don't think you can be in perfectly. I don't think you can be as effective of an advocate for other things. Uh, for example, myself. I love picture books, but I don't think I would be a very good advocate for picture books because I just don't know that market well enough. I, you know, I don't think I could edit one because I don't, again, know that market well enough. I know what's, I know what's good in that I know when something is catchy and repeatable and clever, but I don't think I'd be able to acquire and edit a picture book. Just, it's Mm. not something that I like. It doesn't mean that I don't like it and it doesn't mean I don't enjoy it, but you wouldn't want to sell me one if, when I was an editor, I mean, also my house no. didn't do them, but you know, there's, <laughs> but that's that kind of a thing. Like I do kind of, and obviously you can have a range of various categories and genres that you are interested in. Um, when I was an editor and because my publisher was a bit unique in this way, I could acquire nonfiction adult nonfiction as well as, you know, YA, although my heart was in YA and that was what I knew best. 
I didn't mean I didn't have other interests in nonfiction. In fact, I had assistant editors who did work on nonfiction, so I knew how to do it. And I also do read nonfiction, so it's something that I understood. Um, but yeah, on the sort of like project by project basis, those are kind of that's kind of the only instance I can really think of where you would have like a project by project contract with an agent. Most yeah. of the time, I feel like it's understood that your agent would be guiding you for your entire career. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? I don't think so. Okay. Let's move on. So what are you reading? (gasps) I'm reading something this week. (laughs) Yay! Yay! Um, I am reading The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert. I am just a little over halfway through and I knew literally nothing about this book except that everybody was talking about it, but I didn't know the premise. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I've just seen the gorgeous cover everywhere and I've heard everyone talking about it and it came out and I got it and I'm reading that. Yay. Yay. I have blurb stuff (laughs) that I am reading, but I started the newest Pierce Brown. Iron Gold. Oh, I didn't know there was one. Yes, it came out a couple weeks ago, actually. Iron Gold, is that in the same? It's the same universe. Ooh. It's about his son. Ooh. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm not that far into it, um, and I've kind of been saving it a little bit, uh, but I am also reading something. Yay! It's like, who knew? <laughs> it's happening! <laughs> These people who love books are actually reading them! <laughs> I know! <laughs> um, so, there's a bunch of stuff that I am mostly reading for work, to be honest, but um, that's the one kind of for-myself book that I started. Um, yeah, so, also, what are we working on? Uh, I don't know. Agent stuff. <laughs> I'm getting ready to go on sub with one of my clients projects. Um, so I'm working on that. And so I'm in that place where I have to write the pitch letter and it's just so horrible. Cause I haven't had that breakthrough yet that I've talked about before where my first drafts of pitch letters are always just garbage. Um, but then I hit like a breakthrough and they, they come out really quickly after that. So I'm in the garbage phase of pitch writing. Um, just to update everybody, I, uh, the project that I was in love with that I offered to represent, I got passed again. So that hurts. I, 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 that was, that was hard. David bought me a McFlurry and, uh, and I cried into it, (laughs) (laughs) but I picked myself back up. I've had time to process. Uh, so no new clients signed. Um, but yeah, just getting back. Back in the saddle. It's the end of January now, so I feel like publishing is finally, like, we've had all that time to, like, wean off of the holiday uh, stuff, you know? And now we have to just get back to work. And so <laughs> we're all kind of starting to do that at last. Yeah, I'm still working on Guardians, the first one. I did have a bit of a breakthrough, I think, on my character. So it's been going a bit easier, but then I'm at that stage too, where I just like ask my friends, like, can you give me a word for X 
but not using the word X. And I wanted to imply Y, but not actually saying Z. And it's like you said, this is most of writing, like where you're just like, I can't find the words that I'm looking for. So then you have to ask your friends, help. Like, can you, can you give me a word that is word, but not that? Like, <laughs> um, but writing is going pretty well. As of this recording, we are less than a week out from Shadow Song. Mm-hmm. There's, and I'm at the point too with that book where <laughs> like I'm really happy that it's also out in the UK, by the way. Already? Um, and I'm, yeah, it, there's a week difference. So it came out yesterday in the UK and will be out uh, next Tuesday in the US and Canada. And I'm excited about it being out there and everything, and I'm too tired to care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I. I reread it again, actually. It was like, I think I've read this book more times after it's come back finished than I did Winter Song. Because I read Winter Song so many times before I got the finished copy. I have never read Winter Song ever again. All the way through. I've read bits of it, but I've never read Winter Song from start to finish again. Um, partially because I feel like every time I open Winter Song, I just find stuff that I don't like about it <laughs> and that I would change. But it's too late. So, too bad. Um, but Shadow Song, after having read it again, I like it more. Oh. Which is an interesting feeling, simply because I loved Winter Song, and then as soon as it came out, I was like, I can't look at this book ever again. <laughs> During the writing and ed- editing of Shadow Song, I was like, I can't ever look at this book ever again. But now that it's done, I feel like I have more objectivity on it, mm-hmm. where I'm kind of like, okay, like, I, I like the work that I did on it, and I'm proud of this book, and I like it. Like, I I think I got it, what I was trying to do. Because it really, it's like, sometimes you're just, like, writing into a void. Mm-hmm. You don't know. You just don't know. You don't know. First of all, I had no idea what I wanted to say, and then I discovered what I wanted to say, and then I had no idea if I was able to execute properly. But after every Red Shadow song, I was like, I think I actually did get at what I was trying to say, and I'm happy, and I liked the story, and I was like, oh, good, good. Um, so there's that. So that's what I'm working on. Any off-mini recommendations? Uh, I don't think so. I haven't watched anything or done anything really I started Mass Effect um which is pretty good it could be fighting in Mass Effect is a lot harder than it was in Dragon Age so I died like 25 and I'm on the casual setting too but I died so many times before I finally figured and it's not that the game doesn't have tutorials it does but there are a lot of controls to remember Mm. Um, so I think I've got it figured out. I really like it. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. It's not, it's not as romantic as Dragon Age. And I don't mean that in an actual romance way, not like a romantic relationship kind of way. But the idea of Dragon Age was always kind of romantic from the start. You are a hero that has to save the whole world, um, for the first and third. Mass Effect is not like that, or at least the first game isn't. You are a character who essentially becomes part of a covert operation to take down a rogue agent, essentially, 
is sort of the basic plot of Mass Effect. Um, so it's it's not as romantic in that kind of a way. But I really enjoy it. I like the characters. The animation's pretty decent for 2007, although the mouth options for fem- female Shepard is terrible. Like, every time I look at her talk, I hate it. <laughs> She's voiced by June from Avatar The Last Airbender, though. Oh, she's a great voice actress. She's actually, Jennifer Hale also voices a, a character in Dragon Age Inquisition. Really? Um, so it's like, mm-hmm. So there's that. And then I started, two, well, I started two Korean dramas, but I'm not going to finish one. <laughs> they they're both historical romantic comedies. The first one was is My Sassy Girl, and this is the one I'm not going to finish. And I feel a little bit bad. My Sassy Girl was actually a romantic comedy movie from 2001. It was a big hit in Korea. It's set in contemporary times. Um, and it's the actual literal translation in Korean is That Bizarre Girl. <laughs> And it's this, and it starts with this young man. He's at a train station and sees a really, really drunk girl acting bizarrely. She trips and falls onto the platform, and so he has to save her life. And it's kind of the sort of weird things that happen that kind of throw them into each other's paths. It's really good, actually. So I do recommend the original My Sassy Girl. So they remade it. And then set it in the 18th century Korea. Yeah, I've like, I watched like six episodes of this and I couldn't figure out what I felt about it Mm. because it's very over the top. And when it was funny, when it was funny, it was funny, but then more often than not, it was trying to be funny and wasn't. Oh, yeah. And the two leads are a Adorable, and they're they're great, but they have no chemistry with each other. So I don't think I'll be continuing with my sassy girl, unfortunately. The other one is also a historical romantic comedy, um, and this one is the English title. It's well, it's Kurumi Kurin Talbit, but that's like Moonlight Drawn by Clouds. I think is how they've titled it in English. And this one is about a young cross-dressing heroine who, by <laughs> misfortune and mishap, ends up working as disguised as a eunuch in the palace. <laughs> um, and this is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> adorable. I'm halfway through this one, and I'm definitely... I've also cried way more than I ever expected to in a romantic comedy and not because it's sad. It's just really good at being poignant mm-hmm. and kind of really getting at, like, emotions in that way. And it's not especially deep or, I mean, not that romantic comedies can't be deep, but it's not, like, especially, like, good in any sort of, like, right. this is a great work of art, but it's so enjoyable. So that's those are my off-menu recommendations this week. Excellent. Do we have any new reviews? Uh, I think we're still working through some of the older ones. All right, yeah. So this one is from Mexicals. There are so many podcasts about the creative side of writing, but so few about the business side. This has been my go-to for facing down the anxiety of the submission swamp. 
Thank you for your expertise, your sometimes grim optimism, and your openness about the bibli- the <laughs> your openness about the business of publishing. Thank you, Mexicals. Yay! That's all for this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about everyone's favorite topic in publishing, reviews. Oh, boy. (laughs) Hold on to your hats. It's not everyone's favorite. Everyone hates them. Yeah. (laughs) As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or ask us on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye.